0: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we go to God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is the psalmist who who prayed, uh, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And Father, we need to take your word and internalize it. We need to memorize it, meditate upon it. We need to m- saturate our souls with your word that we might live more consistently and that we might glorify you and that we might be a testimony before the angels and before our neighbors. Of your grace and your goodness. Father, we thank you that we are saved by grace, and it has nothing to do with anything that we do, anything that we bring to the table. It has only to do with what Christ did on the cross, and we accept that by faith. Now, Father, as we study your word today and continue in our understanding of Ephesians, we pray that you would help us to comprehend what is being taught, what your word says and that we may be transformed into the character of Christ as you use your word in our life. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We are studying in Ephesians chapter 1, and we are studying the last verse in the opening statement of blessing in the uh, Barcha, the blessing, the Hebrew word for blessing, and in that, we have learned a tremendous amount about god's plan god's purposes for us, but the focal point is upon Christ, what we have as church age believers in Christ, and part of what we have in Christ is the fact that we have been made a an inheritance which means a possession of god in ephesians one eleven and I had corrected that translation. In him, also, we have been made an inheritance or possession. And then when we get to the last two verses, the focus is on God, the Holy Spirit, and it emphasizes that we have been sealed by the Spirit. And it is this sealing by the Spirit that stamps us with his ownership, that we are his possession, his inheritance, as is stated in verse 11. And I've retranslated the 13th verse to clarify it. In whom, that is, in him, in Christ, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, in whom, he takes up that thought again, in whom, when you believed. So this is what happens at the instant of salvation. When you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And so the issue always for salvation, for phase one salvation, is just trusting in Christ as Savior. At that instant, we have these things that happen to us. We are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. That means that we're identified with Christ. That's the sense of baptism. It's literal uh, denotation is the idea of, of immersion, But its significance, its connotation, is identification with something, especially with relationship to a new state, a new direction, something of that nature. This is why um, John the Baptist came, saying, "...repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And so those who were baptized by him became identified with that kingdom, with that new message. And so in the church age, there is this non-experiential reality. By that I mean we don't feel anything. Nothing seems to change in our lives. We don't have this sense of euphoria and happiness and everything as a sign that we have been baptized by the Spirit. Uh, Some people feel certain things at the time of their salvation. That has nothing to do uh, with with verifying it some people are just in a miserable state and they get saved and it's such a relief to know they're saved that they have a natural emotional response but that is not necessary and is not a sign of their salvation or baptism by the spirit not speaking in tongues or healing or any other sign gift is part of it it is simply a legal transaction that occurs. Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection. And at the same time, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. He makes each and every believer a temple, a place where God takes up residence, and God the Father and God the Son both take up residence in the believer. Christ in us The hope of glory and then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit that is we are marked as God's possession we are identified as his and this determines our eternal destiny we can never ever lose that it never will be set aside and then about the Holy Spirit Ephesians 1 14 says he is the guarantee of our inheritance that's what we're talking about Last week, this week, and next week is this whole concept of inheritance until, that is pointing to the future, the redemption of the purchased possession. So the guarantee has to do with a pledge or down payment for something that will take place in the future, and that is our inheritance when we realize those eternal possessions that God has promised us. And this is realized in the future, the redemption that takes place when we realize the, the result of the payment for sin and we enter into glory. And it's the redemption of the purchased possession. That's you, that's me. And that's to the praise of his glory. Now last week I started teaching about what the Bible says about inheritance. What I'm covering this week depends on you remembering what I taught last week. Now, some of you may not have been here. Some of you didn't get enough sleep last night, so you're just glad you made it here this morning. And others of you are, well, I just need a little help. So we're going to review those four points I covered last time rather quickly, so we set the framework for where we're going to go this morning. First of all, I pointed out that in Ephesians, we have these two words. There's at least two other words in this word group that reference inheritance or heirship. In Hebrews, we have klerao, the verb, uh, in Ephesians 1.11, and that is when God has uh, made us his possession. And then we have the noun kleronomia which refers to inheritance or in possession. That's the word that we have in Ephesians one fourteen, but we'll see it again in Ephesians one eighteen, and also in Ephesians five five. So this is a key concept that's repeated two more times in this epistle. We saw that the core meaning, the core semantic meaning of this word is possession, property, or ownership. And this is recognized by a number of scholars and uh number of different uh, articles that uh, i could quote and provide for you that this is the main idea it doesn't have to do with someone dying but it has to do with ownership possession or property and that's the core ideas we'll see again in our study this morning i used acts 7 5 to show this parallel where god gave abram no inheritance in the land no possession he promised the land as we saw, because we went to Genesis and we traced it through the initial uh, introduction to the promise in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Then we went to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, actually, we went to Genesis 7, uh, 12, 7, where God promised him the land. Then we went to Genesis 15. Then we went to Genesis 17, tracing out that promise in the Abrahamic covenant. So Stephen, just before he died stone for this sermon, uh, and God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he, that is God, promised to give it to him for a possession. That's the different word. So the first word is kleronomia for inheritance. The second word possession is a synonym kataskasis. But what that shows is that the main idea here is possession of what has been promised? We looked at Genesis 12, 1 through 3 as sort of the foundational summary of the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Abram. It's an eternal covenant. And in Genesis 12, 7, to your descendants I've given this land. That's the one focus of the promise. Third, we saw that inheritance in relation to Abraham can be related to the land promise or the seed promise, that is the descendants of culminating in the descendant, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But inheritance is always related to that idea of a divine promise, as we saw in Galatians 3.18. For if the inheritance is of the law, it no longer is a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Fourth, we saw that inheritance is related to rewards, Uh, for what is earned for service. Rewards are earned, salvation is free. That's the conflict that people run into as they read the New Testament without clarity on this particular teaching in the Scripture that people get confused because there are passages that talk about work, there are passages that talk about service, there are passages that talk about behavior, and they think that, that that... it talks about how to get saved. That is talking about how a saved person lives and for our service to God, we will receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. To get to the judgment seat of Christ, you have to be saved. You have to be justified. Justification is by faith alone. As I read from Galatians 2.12 uh, this morning, reciting that verse... We are justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. That is a gift, but rewards are something that that are earned. And so Colossians 3.24, Paul says, Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And then he gives the command. It's a second person plural. Y'all serve God the Lord Christ so this is our command that we are to serve the Lord now the problem is that we have three or four verses that are really at the heart of a lot of cultural discord today and and, and a divided understanding among evangelicals because of the issues related to the whole LGBTQ issue And so there are branches of very legalistic Christians that are not biblical at all in their understanding of Christ's work on the cross. And so they make it sound as if homosexuality or any of these sexual sins will cause you to lose your salvation. And so they are very hateful and spiteful and they say some very nasty things because they don't understand grace, they don't understand the cross, and they don't st- understand that all sin is sin and all sin separates us from God. But these are the passages and why we need to look at them in this, in this study. First Corinthians 6 9, we read, Do you not know that the unrighteous Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, to the unlearned, it appears that this is talking about heaven. It is not. It is not saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not go to heaven? It says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And it goes on with quite another list of sins, uh, including various uh, sins of the tongue and mental attitude sins, that those who commit those sins uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The point is that if this is talking about getting into heaven, then we're all sunk. Because we all commit some of these sins and will commit some of these sins, and if this is talking about heaven, then Christ's death really wasn't sufficient. But we have to understand what this passage says. It's interesting, kind of a side humorous note, that in the printing of the Bible over the years, there were various mistakes that were made. Uh, One Bible translation was actually called the adulterer's Bible because they left the knot out and says, thou shalt commit adultery. This passage was part of what became known as the unrighteous Bible, for it was printed, again, losing the word not, and it said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? So we always have to make sure we look at those little words. Sometimes they can be important. So the problem is that some of these passages that speak of inheritance as a gift but others speak of inheritance as a reward. Uh, so uh, we have to remember a gift is free, but a reward is earned. One has to do with simply f- trusting in Christ to be saved, receiving that free gift of eternal life. The other is serving the Lord after we are saved. Now another problem passage is Ephesians five five, it's Very similar to... First Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, a list of, of sins. And here Paul says, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So if that means heaven, then we've got a problem, especially in this culture, because I can name you a lot of pastors who are covetous, and they're, they would just not be going to heaven if that's what this means. And there also seem to be the same ones who misunderstand the passage. And then the passage we read this morning in Galatians 5.19 through 21 lists a number of sins, uh, sexual sins, such as adultery, fornication. Here it doesn't mention homosexuality but it mentions these other sexual sins they're just they're in the same category as homosexuality uh, adultery fornication uncleanness lewdness all of those have to do with some sort of sexual sin and then in Galatians 5:20 idolatry and in Colossians and in Ephesians Paul identifies greed or covetousness as one form of idolatry worshiping Money or the things that money can buy, thinking that will purchase you happiness, enjoying the things that only God can give you. It is worshiping the things rather of the creator rather than the creator himself. Sorcery is the Greek word pharmakeia, and this has to do with using various uh, hallucinogens and uh, pharmaceuticals in order to escape reality and to give you, and in some cases, it was used in demonic, idolatrous passage, uh, practices in order to uh, worship idols, which, as Paul says, qu- quoting from the Old Testament, are, are demons. You have hatred, contentions, jealousy. So if you get into arguments... If you're ever jealous or envious, you ever lose your temper, have an outburst of wrath, or if you have selfish ambitions, I'm not going to have anybody hold up their hands, um, dissensions or heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. If you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if inherit the kingdom of God means getting into heaven, then, like I said, we're all sunk. But the problem is this legalistic mentality that doesn't really understand grace understand or understand the Bible say, Says marks these sins out as super sins. And if you do them, and they seem to hone in just on one or two of them, not all of them. They're not consistent. And so this cre- has created a level of hostility especially in light of those who are sexually licentious in our culture that has created a hostility an antagonism that is just being exacerbated so that uh, those who are in this movement are pushing back very hard and demanding that, that uh, Christians uh, or pastors should no longer identify their favorite sins as sins. And one of the things going on right now is, of course, most of you know, is that there's been a a non-binding resolution in the California legislature that was passed by their house and has gone to the Senate that strongly encourages a whole group of people, including pastors and religious teachers, not to identify uh, these sins in the lgbtq movement as sins and that encouraging them uh, not to do to change their teaching now this is non-binding but it is it shows the, the, there is a direct assault on this I started teaching as part of a special on the 4th of July on our Independence Day about Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson is important because of a letter he wrote. He's important for a lot of reasons, but in this area he's important because he wrote a letter to the Association of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, who were concerned that the state would interfere with what they were doing, which is the problem we're facing today. And in that letter, he said, basically, don't worry about it. There is a wall of separation between the church and the state. And what he meant by that was this wall of separation was to keep the state out of the church and not the church out of the state. And that is essentially it. But there's a whole lot more to that. And when I covered everything on Thursday night, I came right to this point. And then we're going to spend this coming Thursday night looking at the very fascinating and interesting uh, background and the circumlocutions and distortion of evidence that occurred in the Supreme Court in 1947. And as they started using this phrase, totally out of context, to reinterpret uh, the First Amendment. So you don't want to miss that. It's interesting, I received an email from a man in Canada who has been listening for a number of years And he pointed out, he sent me a a link to a blog that he's written, which I haven't had time to look at yet, but he says that pastors are prohibited by law in Canada from talking about politics, from saying anything about how the word of God impacts uh, political issues. And so uh, this is related to several pieces of legislation, so we have freedom here yet, and so this is important to get this information out. It is uh, the hot one of the hot button issues of, of the day. So we need to understand what this means, and to do that, we have to understand what the scripture teaches about inheritance as possession. So to do that, we need to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the book of Numbers in the Pentateuch. It's right before Deuteronomy, and we're looking at Numbers 36, Numbers chapter 36. This is the last chapter in Numbers. What we see here is in the Old Testament, inheritance referred to the ownership of property. So the basic thing that I'm going to be developing here is this important reality that inheritance means possession. And, and we're going to see eventually that there are two areas of inheritance, being heirs of God and also, uh, beyond that, heirs of Christ. We see the same thing in the Old Testament. There are many passages that refer to those who are heirs of God. God is their possession. That is, a, God is a possession of every believer, and then we will see that there's an additional uh, reality beyond that. So in the Old Testament, um, it refers to a property, uh, ownership of property, especially property that's passed down from one generation to another. But the emphasis is on ownership, not the death of the person, but the possession of the property. And this is a situation that occurs in Numbers chapter uh, 36, when a man by the name of Zelophehad dies, and he has no male heirs, and so we we read in 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 verse two of the conflict, the Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad. To his daughters. Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. The point here is that if you have somebody who dies and they just have daughters, then when that property goes to the daughters, then if they marry outside the tribe, then the property would go. Outside the tribe, so that would mean that the tribal uh, portion of land would diminish over time, as uh, as the property is transferred out of of the original clans to clans via marriage, and so uh, this is going to be resolved in this passage. But the verse that we're looking at here is that second verse that I that I read. And we have the first word, inheritance, is the Hebrew word, nahala. We talked about it a little bit last time, which just simply means inheritance, heritage, or possession. And this is defined, this idea of inheritance in the Old Testament is defined in an article in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology that the Old Testament terms for heir or inheritance and here's the important part, do not necessarily bear the special sense of hereditary succession and possession, although they are found in laws concerning succession. goes on to explain that the main idea is just possession. So the issue here is to keep the land in the, under ownership within which, within the clan. The Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible says that in many instances of biblical usage, the theological meaning of the word goes beyond the legalistic. That doesn't mean legalistic in the sense that you normally hear that word here. That is in terms of the law, okay? So it's the, the theological meaning goes beyond the meaning used in legal precepts. Apart from any legal process, he says, it may characterize the bestowal of a gift or possession upon his people by a merciful God in fulfillment of a promise or as a reward for obedience. That was what we studied last time. The land is given as a reward to Abraham even though he never realized its actual possession. He, when he died, the only part of the promised land he owned was the cave of Machpelah which he had bought, purchased from the Hittites where he buried Sarah. So he never realized the ownership of the land that God had given to him, yet he had the title deed. Ownership would be realized only on the basis of obedience. So as we look at this, we go on to see that these ideas, inheritance, property, possession, and ownership, are interchangeable ideas. There are synonymous words that are used in Hebrew as well as in Greek, And these ideas are all parallel. Fourth thing we recognize is that in the Old Testament, certain categories of people lived in the land, but they did not own the land. They were called sojourners or strangers. They were... um, they were not Jews, but they were living in the land. Some of them were proselytes, but they did not have ownership of land rights that belonged to the to, to the tribes. Levites did not have a possession. Levites lived in the land they were uh, but they were not uh, given a separate tribal allotment, so they have a responsibility for the spiritual leadership of the nation but they do not have ownership in the land. The point I'm making here is that uh, you may be in the kingdom, when we apply this to the future, you can be in the kingdom but not have ownership in the kingdom, just as there were those in the Old Testament who were in Israel but did not have ownership in Israel. So... This goes to another passage in numbers, numbers eighteen twenty where he is instructing the Lord is instructing Aaron, You shall have no inheritance there 's that word Nahala again, which means inheritance, heritage, or possession. You will have no possession in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion that 's the Hebrew word Helic. We studied that a couple of lessons back. It is transla- translated into the septuagint with the Greek word meris, which indicates a portion or a share of inheritance in, in a will, for example. And here God says to the Levites, I am your portion, I'm your inheritance. So there are those who are heirs of God in the Old Testament. He is their uh, inherit, inheritance. Uh, Numbers 18.24 says, For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. So they got 10% of the tithe, annual tithe. There were two annual tithes, and one of them went to the support of the Levites. In a theocracy, the priesthood was basically the bureaucracy. And so this is how they were supported was through the tithe. And that was their possession. They did not have land. So there were distinctions. Fifth point is the application that even in the millennial kingdom, not all who dwell there will possess it. There are going to be distinctions in the kingdom. There are those who teach that when we go to the judgment seat of Christ, God pats everybody on the head, and everybody gets the same package of rewards. And that is uh, clear from first corinthians chapter three that that's not true that there are those who will receive rewards for that which they've done walking by the spirit and they are rewarded those rewards are summarized as gold silver and precious stones and then there are others who lose rewards and because they have so much in their life that is uh, not done by walking by the spirit it's called wood hay and straw it is the In in other words, their production, whatever they did in this life is burned up, yet they enter heaven yet as through fire. Okay, so they have no production. They live their lives totally on their own, apart from walking by the Spirit, lived it according to the flesh, pursued their own desires and wishes, yet they are still justified. They still enter heaven, but they have no possession of the kingdom, as we will see this is uh we also see that in the kingdom there will be those who survive the old the, the uh, tribulation they survive the tribulation and they enter into the kingdom but they still have sin nature so they don't become possessors of the kingdom either they are living in the in the millennial kingdom but they are not inheritors of the kingdom paul says in 1 corinthians 15:50 now i say this brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable so those who survive the tribulation still are in their mortal body their corruptible body still have a sin nature they will enter into the into the kingdom but they will not be uh, inheritors of the kingdom Sixth point we see is that inheritance was given positionally or potentially on the basis of grace, that is, possession. And in the law, uh, the Israelites were told that if you are obedient, you will stay in the land. You will be owners of the land. But if you're not obedient, you will be removed from the land. The military from foreign nations and from Gentiles will come in and defeat you and destroy your cities. And you will be taken captive and scattered among the nations. So they would still have a right to the land, which is what we saw in the first, um, in the first disciplinary action of God upon Israel in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians destroyed the Northern Kingdom. They're taken out and they're scattered among the Assyrian people. In phase 2 of that judgment in 586 BC Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the southern kingdom destroyed the temple burned it to the ground destroyed Jerusalem took captives scattered them around the Babylonian empire but after 70 years they're restored they don't they didn't lose their right to the land they just lost their ownership of the land, and their enjoyment of god 's blessings, that same thing happens in seventy a d The Jews rejected jesus there's divine discipline they're removed from the land, but the land is still theirs, just as the land was still theirs in seven twenty two and five eighty six b c The land is still there, but there's no enjoyment of the land. That is why we are so adamant that Israel has a right. To the land. It is their land. God gave it to them. And it is the job of believers to support the Jews and the Jewish people in their claims to their historic homeland. That doesn't mean we approve of everything they do. Most Jews don't approve of everything that, that Israel does. It means that we recognize their historic claims to their homeland and they have a right to it and they have a right to defend it and they have a right to exist. And so we bless Israel, praying for them, and in many, many other ways. So uh, the inheritance, the possession, is given to Abraham as a part of promise, as part of grace. But the realization of the blessings, the ownership, uh, is uh, is, is not a free grace. It is earned. If they're obedient, they will stay in the land. If they're disobedient then they will lose those blessings. The fact of ownership and the issues there with relation to obedience is illustrated by the Exodus generation. When they disobeyed God in Numbers chapter 13 and they failed to go into the land when they sent in 12 spies, it's a fascinating story, they sent in 12 spies to do a recon. They misunderstood or misinterpreted God's directions. God had already promised to give them the land. He sent the the spies in so that they would be able to come back and give an eyewitness report of the land to the people. Now, ten of the spies thought they were there to see if they could conquer the people that were living there. That wasn't the mission, They came back and they said, we'll never do it. There are giants in the land. There are fortified cities. There's too many people. We can't do it. Two of them came back and said, yes, we can, because God's already given it to us. We just have to obey God, and and it will be ours. But because the people followed the ten spies, they lost the ability to enter into the land. And God said that there would be two, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who, because of their faith, would enter the land and own the land. And so we see that promise in Joshua fourteen nine. So Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God fully. See, because of obedience, there is the inheritance and possession of the land. So point number seven, the possession of the land was therefore conditioned on obedience it was merited therefore as a possession it could be lost as seen in the case of zelophahad's daughters now if you go back to that passage and read it there is a qualification of how that land was going to stay in in the in the tribe but that's beyond our scope of our study this morning and the eighth point what I just pointed out is the entire Exodus generation had become God's firstborn son. That's important. That's analogous to salvation. The nation is God's firstborn son. It's adoption. So we're going to see that adoption is related to inheritance. And that is seen in Exodus 4:22 to 23. Yet the entire generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, forfeited that Inheritance due the firstborn. Are they still the firstborn? Yes. Do they still have uh, inheritance related to being the firstborn? Yet, but the reward of the land is not going to be theirs. And Joshua 14, 8 and nine is a passage where uh, Moses says that the land will be be theirs, belonging to Joshua and Caleb. And Exodus four twenty two and twenty three that's our passage related to the firstborn. That Israel is God's firstborn, and so they, as the firstborn, they have an inheritance. If there's an obedience, then you get a double inheritance, and that double inheritance is the realization, full realization of all the blessings related to the uh, possession. The point number nine, though not all have an inheritance in the land, all have God as their inheritance and possession. So we see this first category of inheritance in the Old Testament. if you're a believer, it talks about the fact that you you are an heir of God you have God is your is your possession for example in psalm seventy three twenty six My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion Helic that's designating the share of the inheritance, my portion forever. God was there. Was the uh, heir of every believer in the Old Testament? Psalm 119:57, "The Lord is my portion; I have promised to keep Thy words." God is the heir of every believer, whether they're obedient or disobedient. Psalm 142:5, "I cried out to Thee, O Lord; I said, Thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living." Now, the Old Testament is the background for the New Testament. We always have to understand that the precedent for the words in the New Testament, for the illustrations in the New Testament, is always the Old Testament. So when the New Testament talks about inheritance and rewards and it talks about salvation, all of this is predicated on how these terms are developed and illustrated in the Old Testament uh, for us. So in the tenth point here, we're transitioning to the church age, in the church age Christ is given ownership of all things and the believer shares in the ownership as a uh, as a joint heir in Christ only as we mature as believers we'll get we'll get back to the passage in, or get to the passage in Romans 8:17 in just a second we are heirs of God every single believer But this additional heirship, joint heirs in Christ, has to do with our spiritual growth, and that's what's described in Romans 8.17. The issue here is this phrase in Romans 8.17, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The way we have it typically translated is to put a comma after children, and then there's a comma after children. Um, after joint heirs with christ what there's no commas in the greek what that does is it makes heirs of god and joint heirs with christ look as if they're the same thing and that's how many people teach it that if we're children we have two categories of heirship automatically we're heirs of god and we're joint heirs with christ the problem is that there's a conditional clause after that if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. That seems to add, if we're saved by faith alone in Christ, then this would seem to suggest, no, you're saved by faith alone in Christ and suffering with him. Well, wait a minute. That, that sounds more like work. See, that's where works... And faith in Christ get conflated. This is a problem in many systems of theology, but especially in what we call lordship theology. So I always love this illustration. If you have this phrase, woman without her, man is nothing, where do you put the commas to punctuate the sentence? Where do those commas go? Well, if... um, you are a woman, you probably put the commas here. Woman without her, man is nothing. All right? But if you're a man, you probably put the commas here. Woman without her man, comma, is nothing. So you have two completely different sentences based on where you put the commas that's what happens in romans eight seventeen. if you put the commas the way they are typically put that is just one comma after children then heirs of god and joint heirs with christ become synonyms but if you put a comma after heirs of god what we read if children then heirs of god that's a first category And the second category is joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. So that that conditional clause applies only to the category of being a joint heir with God. So that means there are two types of heirs. There are those who are heirs of God, that refers to all believers, and those who are joint heirs with Christ, and this refers to those who are growing and maturing spiritually. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy that all who desire to be godly will be persecuted. In 1 Peter, again and again, Peter talks about the fact that if you're growing and maturing as a believer, you're going to run into problems in life. Uh, the suffering here isn't martyrdom some people read intense suffering into this It just you're going to face problems you're going to be living in the midst of the angelic conflict and there are going to be difficulties and challenges and heartaches and things like that that are related to the fact that you're trying to grow spiritually and uh, there are there's opposition from the devil's world so we have these two categories of airship You had the same thing in the Old Testament being heirs of God and also those who were advancing to maturity and experienced a richness of blessing by God in this life. Now, that takes us up to dealing with some of the uh, complicated passages, and we have to deal, first of all, with this whole issue of what the Bible teaches about heirship. So we'll come back next time and get into this next area this next topic, and then we will be able to set up our understanding of those uh, difficult or problem passages that are so often abused and and misinterpreted. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the Word, to be reminded of your grace, that in the gospel there's no condition. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no condition of adding and if you are obedient and if you repent of your sins and if you change your life and if you join the church and if you are baptized there's there's no nothing else it's just simply believing in Jesus Christ. And the instant we believe in Christ we are we are saved. We are justified. We're given new life in Christ. We are given the righteousness of Christ and declared righteous. And we are given eternal life so that we may uh, have eternity in heaven. But, Father, there's something that occurs after we are saved, after we are born again, after we are given new life, and that is the nourishment and the nurturing of that life, growing to spiritual maturity, desiring the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. And so that becomes the next important decision in our lives are we saved, and are we going to grow and mature as believers? Or are we going to serve you? And that's the second area of inheritance. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message, anyone here who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that you would just make the gospel very clear to them that that's the issue. It's not about sin, and it's not about failure. It's not about behavior. It's about trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, for he paid for every sin that we commit there's none that was left out and so it's all paid for at the cross and if we believe and trust in him then after that we have a second decision to make as to whether or not we are going to exploit our new life whether we're going to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our lord jesus christ or whether we are just going to be happy we're going to heaven and then live according to our own desires for the rest of our life that's the second challenge that we need to decide whether or not we are going to be truly disciples, followers of Jesus, or not. And that's a decision we make every single day. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness, for what you have revealed to us in your word, that we may live today in light of eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.